recent reading. So about a year ago, I started a research project focused on the transfer of learning. Given the often disappointing evidence for learning transfer, meaning learning something in one place and then being able to apply it somewhere else, I was eager to dig into the research on apprenticeships and learning by doing. But the research turned out to be a little more complicated and interesting than I had expected. I wrote a little bit about some of the difficulties with my original hypothesis in an essay about uh, where learning by doing uh, succeeds and fails. And since then, I've been exploring more broadly to try to build a more coherent picture of how we think and learn. So the following books are from my most recent batch. And if you want to see more, there are some other recent reading series. So you can uh, check those out on the podcast as well. Number one, Descartes' Error by Antonio Damasio. The mind is not separate from the body. Emotions are essential to reason. Descartes' error was assuming that our sense of self is grounded in our ability to think and that the flesh we inhabit is a mere appendage. Damasio is a neuroscientist most famous for his somatic marker hypothesis. This theory argues that we unconsciously integrate perceptions of our emotional and physical state. So these bodily cues serve to mark out decisions for risk and reward, allowing us to make intelligent gut decisions. Damasio's principal evidence comes from brain-damaged patients. Those with damage to the limbic system exhibit normal intelligence, but are utterly useless in their personal lives. They can't make decisions, in part, because they lack the emotions that would help them prioritize. In the Iowa gambling task, participants choose cards from decks. Some have high rewards, but occasionally have big losses. Other decks are safe choices. They have lower rewards, but fewer big dips. Control participants without brain damage learn to sense which decks are risky and avoid them, but brain damage patients who have this particular brain damage continue to choose the risky cards. I found the book persuasive, but the somatic marker hypothesis remains controversial. Number two, Greatness by Dean Simonton. Who makes history and why? Psychologist Dean Simonton surveys a vast scientific literature on the contributions of famous artists, scientists, politicians, and leaders. Simonton finds that career productivity exhibits a characteristic shape. Output rapidly accelerates at the start of career onset, followed by a peak and a more gradual decline. The sharpness of the peak is field-specific, with poets and mathematicians both rising and falling faster than, say, novelists or biologists. Quality and quantity are highly correlated in creative work. The best scientists, authors, and artists are also the most prolific. Price's Law puts this observation into a mathematical language. Half of all creative output will be produced by the square root of the number of researchers. So, to illustrate in a group of 100 scientists, this equation predicts that half of the papers will be published by only 10 researchers. Number three, Secret Knowledge by David Hockney. How did Renaissance era painters go from stilted, unlifelike paintings to near photorealism in just a few decades? Artist David Hockney amasses compelling evidence that Renaissance-era painters made use of mirrors and lenses much earlier than previously suspected. He argues that the old master's adoption of optics not only caused the rapid increase in realism, but led to signature distortions that a careful eye can detect. Number 4. Will College Pay Off? by Peter Capelli. 
Wharton professor Peter Capelli reviews the evidence on the financial payoff of going to college. What he finds is confusing, and that's sort of his point. Capelli finds that the return on a college degree varies wildly. Majors that are hot right now may not be after graduation. Schools that offer more vocational training often have worse returns than traditional liberal arts institutions. Financial aid, student loans, and the fact that few people pay the actual sticker price make it even harder to evaluate the return on higher education. Capelli argues against the idea of a skills gap that claims there's a deficit of highly skilled workers. Instead, he argues that there is a training gap. Employers want new workers to be job ready, but they don't want to invest any time getting new hires up to speed. Unfortunately, employers don't seem to care much about the academic skills offered in school, so the direct value of such preparation is questionable. Now, this book is not very helpful if you wanted a clear answer to the titular question of whether college will pay off, but if you wanted to understand how the labor market works and who gets hired, it's a fascinating overview. Number five, Exploring Science by David Clark. How do scientists think? Clark, drawing on the pioneering work of Herbert Simon and Alan Newell, views scientific cognition as an act of problem solving. Discovery is a search through the space of possible hypotheses, as well as possible experiments for testing whether those hypotheses are correct. In contrast to sociological and anthropological studies of science, such as Bruno Latour's laboratory life, Clark examines discovery processes in controlled experiments. Students were given programmable gadgets with mysterious functions and then asked to figure them out. From that, Clark and others deduce the cognitive processes involved in scientific work. Now, the book is full of interesting tidbits, but one that stood out to me was an alternate explanation for the famous 246 task. So in this experiment, subjects are given the numbers 246 that follow a rule, and they're asked if they can come up with other numbers that follow the rule to try to guess what the rule is. So experiments typically find confirmation bias in this task. So people come up with a theory, for instance, that it's uh, 1x, 2x, 3x, and then they only test examples which seek to confirm that theory. So 369, 10, 20, 30. Now, the actual rule is any ascending sequence, so 3, 7, 48, would also work for this pattern, but people tend to pick narrower rules. Now, Clark, in contrast, argues that students instead rely on what he calls a positive test strategy. So this test strategy of trying to find positive examples is rational if you assume most of the tests you try won't work. So he argues that this 246 test might be a little misleading in thinking that confirmation bias in general is the rule. Six, Working Minds by Beth Crandall, Gary Klein, and Robert Hoffman. Tacit knowledge is a major barrier to informal learning. When you see an accomplished artist paint a masterpiece, how do they do it? If you're lucky, you might be able to see their brush strokes, but you can't really see why they made those strokes. Which factors did they consider? Which heuristics, skills, and intuitions did they use? Since Schneider and Schriffen's theory of controlled and automatic processing, it's been argued that skills proceed through phases. In the beginning, performing any skill is deliberate and effortful, and with time, it becomes invisible and automatic. Figuring out how experts perform the skill is hard, and this isn't because they hoard secrets, but because the right thing to do is so apparent to them that it becomes difficult to express. Cognitive task analysis is a family of methods designed to tease out this kind of knowledge. It includes concept mapping, structured interviews, and retelling critical incidents. 
While extracting expert knowledge is itself a skill that requires considerable training, I found the basic framework helpful here for thinking about developing skills. Number seven, Cognition and Reality by Ulrich Nessier. The cognitive revolution in psychology is often dated to Nessier's text, Cognitive Psychology. This revolution brought with it a renewed interest in hidden mental processes that were considered unscientific in the age of American behaviorism. In this book, Nasser turns against some of the new distortions the revolution brought about. In particular, he criticizes the computer model espoused by researchers like Herbert Simon and Alan Newell. He calls for greater ecological validity in psychological experiments. So, for instance, experimental findings or predictions should mirror real-life behavior and not just be some weird finding from a laboratory. The importance of a schema is a central idea in Nessier's thought. These are mental patterns you have that allow you to pick out information from the environment. Your schema for English words, for instance, enables you to make sense of black squiggles on a page that you might be reading. Now, there's an ongoing debate between constructivist and positivist visions of psychology. Constructivists see the world top-down. Prior knowledge, context, and culture limit what we're able to see. Positivists see the world bottom-up. We gain knowledge directly from our senses and science. Now, the reality is probably both. As I discuss in my review of Walter Kinch's construction integration theory, we have stimulus-driven rules for understanding text, but apply prior knowledge to make inferences and assemble complex meanings. Both schemas in our head and stimuli in the outside world combine to determine our thoughts. Number eight, Noise by Daniel Kahneman, Olivier Siboney, and Cass Sunstein. Everybody worries about bias. Not enough people worry about noise. Using the author's analogy, imagine firing at a target. Bias means the center of your shots miss the bullseye in a consistent way. Noise means your shots have a large spread, so they go all over the place. Both are bad, but the latter often gets overlooked. The authors point out that noise can often be worse than bias. Judges set wildly different sentences for the same crimes. Insurance underwriters have large ranges in the quotes that they offer for particular risks. Employers' impressions of candidates vary significantly from in-person interviews. To avoid bias, the authors suggest a few decision hygiene strategies. For instance, use mechanical rules over human judgments, aggregate independent ratings, use rank comparisons rather than absolute scales, use structured analytical assessments before holistic evaluations. Finally, take the outside view. Use base rates to judge likelihood. My interest in this book stems from the limits of learning and expertise. Kahneman is famously skeptical of expertise, arguing that many so-called experts simply aren't very good. Why are we so noisy and fallible in our judgment, even with years of training and experience? And what does this answer say about the path to self-improvement? Number nine, Administrative Behavior by Herbert Simon. Herbert Simon won a Nobel Prize for his work on bounded rationality. In administrative behavior, based on his doctoral dissertation, he argues that many principles of management are self-contradictory. Instead, he views management as being an issue of information and influence. Individual decision-making suffers under the constraints of limited attention and processing capacity. The existence of firms, Simon argues, is predicated on the enhanced ability of organizations to channel flows of information to enable cooperation. 
I found this book interesting because it identifies organizational learning problems, essentially as network problems. Only when you see the work of organizations in such a light can you make sense both of their powers and influence on modern society as well as their numerous dysfunctions. Number 10, Scientific Elite by Harriet Zuckerman. Who becomes a Nobel Prize winner? And how do they differ from rank-and-file scientists? Zuckerman's classic work takes a comprehensive look at the lives of American Nobel laureates. She systematically combed over their family backgrounds, typically wealthy, professional, their educational path, invariably elite, and scientific careers, prolific, concentrated in highly productive networks. Zuckerman, with the great sociologist Robert Merton, argues in favor of the Matthew effect in science. Alluding to the biblical passage, this argues that elite research is a self-reinforcing cycle. The best talents get the best mentors, the most funding, access to cutting-edge problems, and researchers outside this illustrious circle struggle to compete. I'm fascinated by data-driven counts of how elite success works in various fields. While few of us will ever reach such heights, the knowledge of how to achieve that success is unevenly distributed. As one Nobel laureate remarked on the obvious truth of finding good scientific mentors, quote, Many of the students were just silly about the way they chose professors. They didn't know professors of real quality. Certainly, some part of success is due to innate talent and sheer chance. But it seems more than coincidental how those who eventually win so often exhibit shrewd analysis of the often obscure rules of success in their field. Now, I've done a few of these book roundups, but I've spent a similar amount of time reading scientific papers. Maybe I should make a list of some of the more interesting ones I've read. Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.